Welcome to the Hunt Back Hunter podcast today. This is episode number 337, and we're taking a deep dive on rangefinders, how they work, and sometimes why they don't. I had some experiences with a rangefinder uh, and then reached out to the guys at SIG, who I was testing this rangefinder from, with some questions and talked with Jake from SIG, who is our guest on this podcast today who's someone I had met before, uh, but in this call that I had with him, he started rattling off things about rangefinders, and I realized he was next level in terms of my knowledge. I'm simply the hunter who picks up the device, pushes a button, and waits for magic to happen, but I don't know the ins and outs of really how these devices function, some of what their different settings and modes are, some of the conditions or targets that affect their performance, and much more. And so that's what we get into today, is to share all of that knowledge with you. And I can guarantee you that no matter what rangefinder you use, or may be interested in, in the future, you'll have a much better understanding of the capabilities and function of that product, and then also be able to compare rangefinders as you may be shopping for a new one in the future. So I hope you guys enjoy this. As always, we appreciate you not only tuning in, but sharing your feedback with us, you can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or use the link in the show description to leave us your question for a future Monday Minute Q&A episode. Go ahead and hit pause if you want to do that now and then come right back. Here's this conversation with Jake Love from Sig Sauer. Well, Jake, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. I'm excited to chat with you today, man. Oh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's um, talking about rangefinders. I basically am excited because I had a conversation with you that was pretty brief, but you were like saying these things. I'm like, I had never thought of that. I had no idea that that was a thing. Like <laughs> I was learning it a ton. So I was like, we need to share this with, with the podcast. Um, before we dive into that, What's uh, any personal introduction, background, professional background you kind of want to share just to let listeners get to know you a little bit? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a normal guy. Grew up fishing a lot with my, my uncle. Um, I was, a funny story is I was uh, encouraged to spend time with my father-in-law when I first met my wife. And that I think she regrets to this day because, of course, he took me deer hunting for the first time and I just fell in love with it. I never thought I'd see myself as a hunter, but once I got out and started doing it, it's I enjoy just about every aspect of it. Yeah. Um, started with SIG a little over five, almost five and a half years ago now. And um, I hit the ground running. I, I attended a trade show in the outdoor industry and just kind of felt at home and knew that's where I wanted to end up and worked really hard for a couple of years to, to secure myself a position in there. And, um, I think when I started at SIG optics, I was the 16th or 17th person in the building and we're almost 170 plus now. Mm, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I didn't realize it was yeah. that good. Yeah. We, I started in a little 12 and a half thousand square foot facility in uh, Tualatin, Oregon. Then we moved into a bigger building in Wilsonville, which is where we're currently at. That one's about, uh, I think, 32,000 square feet. And we're now looking to expand that even farther because we're out of room. Wow. So talk a little bit about the super high level with SIG because it's also something, you know, I've seen, I've had exposure to in the last couple of years, getting to know you and Patrick and some of the guys and just realizing, man, it's such a big, call it like ecosystem of a company. And I think hunters are probably beginning to feel that a little bit because, you know, like myself, I was aware of Sig Sauer in terms of handguns and didn't know a ton about the background, but it's like, oh, it's this German company, you know, it's what in my head and they just make handguns. And in the last, like you said, five years, it's like, oh, well now there's scopes, there's range finders, there's rifles, you know, they're getting in the hunting market. But um, I know that's a broad question, but maybe just touch like super high level. What is like the kind of the branches of SIG or what's been the progression even in the time that you've been there? 
So when I've been, when I started kind of our conglomerate, I guess is, is, you know, the best term for it that we are now was already in place. But the vision before that was we wanted to have basically if it goes on a rifle, we want or a handgun or even a rifle or a handgun, we want to have a variety of solutions for you. So um, we can sell you the cross rifle. We can sell you a suppressor to go on it. We can sell you the optic and the rings to mount a scope to it. We can also sell you the ammunition. So if you have questions, you know, you have one place to go to, not five different manufacturers potentially. And people still have their ammo preferences, their optics preferences, you know, that that's okay. Um, but we wanted to have pretty much everything that you would need in one spot. Hmm. So for you personally, what was that like coming onto the optics team? Is that, well, I guess, what's your background in optics, electronics, things like that? Or was that mostly in this last five years, taking that deep dive to learn all that? I was strictly an end user when I started. Um, I, you know, I used rangefinders, I used binos, I used scopes, but I knew really nothing about them. Um, and then when I started here, thankfully, we were such a small team, and the the people in this company are phenomenal. And you can go ask them questions and say, "Hey, I don't understand this," and they may not be able to right at that moment you know, take the time to explain it to you, but they will at some point. And they're, they're very willing to help people learn. And so I picked our electrical engineers brains. I picked our optical engineers brains. I picked um, the vice president, president of our company. And I still pick those guys as brains. Um, Just trying to constantly keep up with it because it's such a fast moving world that, you know, you can never think that you have it all figured out because you don't. Hmm. Cool. So as we start to think about, talk about range finders, range finding technology and what, what affects that, what variables there are. And that's a lot of the stuff I wanted to talk about, but I was want to make sure we're on the same page, like with listeners in different contexts and different levels of understanding. And even for myself, can you give us like the, the third grader version of how a rangefinder works? Because like you said, you were an end user quite a while ago and now you've learned a ton. I still feel like I'm pretty much an end user. Um, and it's like, oh, here's this device and I push this button, magic happens. It tells me how far away something is. I get that there's a laser. I think it has to do with time. Like I'm assuming that the laser then sends a signal or is received back or reflected back. And based on the time of that, call it transaction, that's how it judges distance. Maybe I'm wrong, but give us like the third grader version of here's how a laser rangefinder actually works. That's, that's honestly really the simplest way to put it is the rangefinder sends an infrared signal out. It's a certain size and it counts how long it takes it to get, receive a signal back. And then that's what it displays as the range. Okay. So it is time-based. Cool. So in, in a rangefinder, then if we pick up different brands, different types, you know, rangefinders have different capabilities, right? So one can read out to, there is rated for a thousand yards, one's 10,000 yards. What's the difference between those two in terms of the, that base capability is it has to do, is it the, the strength of the laser, the style, like the, type of the laser what creates that capability well so most of the rangefinders that we see in our consumer market will operate on the 905 infrared nanometer wavelength um, so with that you can have a class one laser and you can have a class three it's class one m technically and you can have a class three R laser. These are just different classifications given to the strength of the laser, um, actually by the FDA, believe it or not. And so they, um, that plays into part of it, but the ranging engine itself plays into part of it. You know, the prism, the optical system of the rangefinder, um, that plays into part of it. Because if you have a rangefinder that, you know, it's got a really great laser, but it's got poor optic, it's, it's not going to go very far. Um, so the, the 
there's several moving parts that all play into how those units function and their, you know, max range specs per se, or as you would say. Um, but it's, it's an ever evolving game. And, you know, we kind of did that this year with our, our new line of range finders and, and taking those distances really farther than most people have had um, outside of military units. Okay. Well, can you uh, clarify what you mean by the optic? Because um, when I hear optic, I'm thinking, you know, my eye visually, what it can see through an optical device. But how does, yes. a, how does the laser interact with an optic? So when you pick up most range finders, um, with the exception of range finding binoculars, let's, let's talk about monoculars for a second. So when you pick up that monocular, the part that we look through um, has the display in it, but that's not where the laser actually sends and receives the signal. On most rangefinders, you'll notice they have one or two um, little apertures underneath them or lenses underneath the optical portion of the, of the rangefinder. There's optics inside that we never see because we're, you know, we're looking through a a small portion of it, but that laser still uses mirrors and prisms and stuff to send the signal in and out and receive it back. Okay. So th there's, there's more. And then, you know, the aperture itself or the lens over the laser, you know, there's a performance difference between one that's made out of plastic and one that's made out of glass, but there's also a big price difference between them too. So, um, what we try to do is we try to make the best value for that price point. And then some of them we have glass and then some of them we have plastic and some of them might have plastic housings. Some of them might have metal housings. Um, all of that stuff plays into how the range fires are built. Okay. Are those, is that like, if you go to, a website and you're looking to buy rangefinders and you're looking at different brands, do they share that? Like the, the laser aperture is glass versus plastic plastic. Is that a common spec that you can easily find while shopping or no? I honestly um, do not know the answer to that. Okay. It's, it's pretty hard to tell sometimes because, you know, we get some pretty clear plastics, um, I would say for the most part, you're going to start hitting the glass lenses over the lasers once you hit that five, $600 price point. Okay. That's, that's good. Uh, you mentioned class one and class three prior. Does SIG use both types of lasers for the different uh, types of range finders or are they all one or the other? Um, no, we, we absolutely do for a few of them. So currently our Kilo 3000 range finding binoculars and our Kilo 10K range finding binoculars use class 1M lasers. Um, in those, in the binocular testing, there was no discernible difference in performance between the class ones and the class three in ranging performance. And so what that allows us to do is in European markets, you cannot always sell class three lasers. Um, they limit a lot of stuff to class ones. So by doing that, we can make a global unit and not have to have separate SKUs and not lose any performance out of the rangefinder. Okay. This is a good time to talk about something I plan to talk about later, but now is great. The difference between a handheld like monocular rangefinder versus a rangefinding binocular. Cause one of the questions that we had talked about offline was I had this scenario on a hunt this past year where I was, uh, I had both with me and I was using both to try and hit the same target and was getting kind of different results, not in terms of um, what the yardage was saying, but in how quickly or consistency and consistently I could um, get it to range. And then you began to kind of tell me about the differences and uh, I want to use, I'm not trying to put the word in your mouth. I don't know if you use this term, but the impression that I got was like, well, a range finding binoculars going to be more forgiving because it has a larger objective to work with. Um, mm -hmm. And then you mentioned even prior in this conversation, like 
the the actual laser aperture objective on, on a monocular is separate. Is it then the same through a, a range finding monocular? And then again, kind of some of the differences of how those two work and why one, like the class one, for example, you just mentioned is in the binoculars, but there's no really need for the class three. Is that because of the objective factor there? Yes. And also the stuff that we're able to do um, internally with the electronics, kind of like our, our secret sauce, as you would call it. Um, we're able to do some pretty cool things. There's some people that are way smarter than I am working behind the scenes to, to make those things perform like they do. But yes. So it, to, to answer the first part of that, um, the, a monocular has roughly a 20, 18 to 20 millimeter, you know, call it window that it sends or receives the signal from. Some of them have two separate units. One's a late, you know, one's a send channel, one's a receive channel. Some of them have them in the same, in the same window. The binoculars, at least in our case, send out of one channel the right side and receive out of the left so you go from a 20 millimeter you know objective to a 42 millimeter objective you're able to receive a lot more signal that's coming back and and that's kind of a good segue to to jump into the signal itself you know something like the kilo 10k that signal at a hundred yards, that beam is five and a half inches wide. So at a thousand yards, it's five and a half feet wide. So if you hit, you know, a leaf on a tree, that's maybe only three inches wide and that signal has to come back a thousand yards. That's, we want to get every bit of signal that we can get there. So that's where the binoculars come in handy, because if you happen to get that signal received just a little bit, you know, off of where it was when you originally ranged, the binoculars will pick that up more than a monocular will in most cases. Okay, cool. Talking, I wanted to talk about, and again, this is some of the conversation we had prior to this podcast that I was just like fascinated to begin learning about. So we're talking about the laser sending, receiving the things that affect that. And so I'll throw some out and we can come back to these um, and touch on them more, but things like the surface that you're trying to range, uh, the, the environmental variables. Um, so the lighting conditions cover uh, things of that nature. Um, I remember you talking about, I, I want to say like some sort of ceiling or window or threshold that could affect the signal. Um, yeah. and this is a conversation I was like, it's like, I wanted to dive deeper. So that's what we're doing today. So let's talk on those things, like kind of each one and any others, but basically under this big umbrella of, okay, here's this range finder. It has this capability, but here are the things that will affect the performance either allowing it to perform at its maximum or that can limit it in terms of its ability to perform at its maximum. So I mentioned a couple, there's probably more, but I kind of want to take a deeper dive on, on any of the variables to know about that can affect that. Yeah. I mean, your environmental conditions can absolutely affect how your rangefinder performs. So a rangefinder is kind of two worst enemies are moisture in the air and sunlight, believe it or not. Um, so the moisture in the air, like let's say we're trying to, to range through, you know, a little bit of rain. Well, raindrops can reflect that laser signal. Lasers have a hard time going through, through water. So if you've ever had a water bottle and took a laser pointer and stuck it up to the water bottle, most of the time they don't go through the water and it's going to reflect it off and refract it off into different places. So that's the same thing happens. So if you're trying to range in the rain, there are millions of little tiny reflectors in the path of your range finder. Um, same thing with fog. When we get a little bit of fog, obviously those particulates get a little bit closer together. So we, we now can't go through that as we would normally. We have done some cool things with our Kilo 8K and Kilo 10K where they have a fog ranging mode where we do some stuff with the electronics to kind of say, hey, 
you know, here's what we're going to pay attention to. Here's what we're not going to pay attention to. And it allows us to go farther. Um, the, the farthest I've been personally able to range, and it, it's going to be kind of hard to describe it, but I was sitting on a hillside and I had fog rolling through where I could still see through it. You know, it wasn't so dense that I couldn't see the other side of the hill. Um, but I definitely didn't have a clear picture of what I was looking at. I was able to get to a little over 630 yards, which I'm, I'm not going to be able to take a shot like that because I can't see through the scope at what I'm looking at, but the range finder was able to still go through it. And I was able to confirm that once the fog rolled out, I just ranged the same spot and it was like 632 yards and change. I believe it was. Um, so that definitely can affect what's going on with, with the lasers. The other part of that and kind of what you were talking about is sunlight and a rangefinder's job is to pretty much separate signal and noise. So there is a thing commonly referred to as the noise floor. And an analogy I could put here is let's say, um, well, we'll describe the noise floor a little bit here. So the noise floor, when you're, when you're out first thing in the morning, lights just coming up, you know, you're, you're barely just starting to get to see the noise floor is down. It's on the ground. It's, it's not really causing any interference. So obviously we can range forever when the sun's just coming up. But as the sun comes up farther and farther, that noise floor gets farther and farther off the ground. And so much that where we're trying to range small targets at far distances, because, you know, we all want to see how, just how far these range finders go. It's, it's a fun thing to do. Um, but there gets to be a point where that noise floor gets so far off the ground and the signal degrades so much by the time it gets back that the range finder can't separate the signal and the noise anymore. And it just kind of says, oh, I got nothing. So a real world analogy I could put it that is like, let's say you're in a shopping mall and your buddy's at the other end and there's no one in it. You guys can hear each other, no problem. But as the day goes on and more people come in, all of a sudden you guys have to get closer and closer to each other to be able to hear what each other are saying. That's kind of what the noise floor does to range finders. And then what about the surface of what you're trying to range? Because we had some conversations about trees versus rocks and even different types of trees, for example. Um, so number one, talk about how the surface of what you're trying to arrange affects the performance. And then also very practically, like what are those things as hunters in the field that are going to be more effective to range versus the things that would be less effective to range? Yeah. So evergreen trees, always a good thing to try and range. You know, you can, you, they all ha always have foliage. Um, it's a good reference point. Now, rocks, are they fun to range? Absolutely. Am I going to try and range one as far as I possibly can? Yes. But it's not necessarily a good thing to judge your range finder off of. Um, think of it like, you know, rocks aren't always flat. You know, they have angled surfaces. So you might range something. And let's say this rock is a thousand yards away. So I'll use the Kilo 10K as an example again. The beam on that is five and a half feet wide and it's seven and a half inches tall. So we need a surface that is parallel to us to be able to reflect that, or sorry, perpendicular to us to be able to reflect that range back. So if, if I don't have a surface that does that, my signal could go off to the left, it could go off to the right, or it could come back. And, you know, if we're standing side by side, it might go towards you and not directly back at me. Um, so that's, I, I don't like to, a lot of people don't like to judge performance on rocks because of that. It's, it's not necessarily, you know, the most conducive to, to being able to get a signal back, but you know, there, there could be times where you're trying to arrange stuff and it's like, you know, you, me, and Steve could all be standing right next to each other, shoulder to shoulder. And for whatever reason, Steve can get a range back on the same target, hand the range finder to me. I may not get one back and then he could hand it, to, well, I could hand it to you and you might get one back. Um, and they, although they have reflective properties, they're not necessarily re reflective. So if you get a rock that's real porous, it might absorb more of that laser than, than something that's not porous. 
Um, same thing with ranging steel targets. If you take a steel target and paint it with a matte paint that doesn't have any metal in it, you've now covered up the, the metal. And so although it still has reflective properties, it's, it was never a truly reflective thing in general. But we've now decreased the reflective properties of that, of that target because we've covered it up. But if you use a gloss paint, something that's got metal flakes in it to make it shine, shouldn't have any effect on it. Um, a very common one is, you know, a lot of us archery hunt soft foam black targets, especially like the block targets. They absorb laser. There's, there's no way around it. They absorb that laser when you range. It. And so your signal, it, it goes in farther than it thinks. So you might have a half yard difference sometimes on black targets. You, um, when you mentioned earlier, you just mentioned that at you know, five and a half inches at a hundred and five and a half feet at a thousand, but you said it was seven and a half inches tall. Is that what I heard? At a thousand. Yeah. At a thousand. So yeah, when you mentioned it earlier, I imagine that is a cone going out, but it's basically this straight line. Is that it's a, it's a rectangle. Yeah. Yeah. Is that typical of most rangefinders? For the most part? Yes. Some, some people do stuff differently. Um, some like in golf, a lot of times in golf rangefinders, instead of it being like a horizontal bar, they make it a vertical bar so people can range the flagpole. Flagpole. Okay. Um, Interesting. but it, for the most part, it's, it's, it's going to be rectangles. I don't know of anyone that uses like a conical or circular shape. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I think for the most part, a lot of people use the horizontal bars. I just, I'm just imagining like, you know, you're trying to range a deer at 700 yards and he's right next to a tree, but 20 yards behind it, you know, and you're going to pick up that tree every single time. Cause you've got that real wide, um, wide rectangle there. Uh, yeah. Super interesting yeah. to know that's how it works. Well, and uh, kind of to elaborate on that. So tree trunks actually really aren't reflective targets. Um, they're actually the worst part to range on a tree. Now, obviously, you know, when we're in there and we're, we're elk hunting and we're trying to get something in, you know, 50, 40, 30 yards, absolutely range every tree you got. You need to know mm -hmm. your distances. Um, but it's something like that where you're talking 700 yards in a deer, you most of the time should be picking up that deer more than that tree. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So it's just going to pick then, up the first strong signal that comes back. Well, that kind of depends on how your rangefinder is set up. And I'll get into that in just okay. a second. But at, at that distance, you know, think of like a pine tree, how that surface isn't flat. You know, there's crevices in that bark where your laser is going to go. So when that beam is going out, that tree is actually going to, that trunk of the tree at that distance is actually going to degrade that signal more than the deer is. So you're more likely to get a return off of the deer than you are the tree. Um, but kind of to what we were talking about before, you know, if, if you got a deer or say an elk that, you know, went and laid and, you know, wallowed in some mud an hour or two ago, and now they got some mud on, we may have some problems at that distance. You know, that's not something we can control. And, um, mud is absolutely going to start to absorb laser or that, that laser signal. Um, but what you were talking about, Steve. So we, um, most rangefinders have different target ranging modes. So in a lot of ours, you'll see. Oh, can I touch ahead, on Mike. that Jake? Cause like, yeah. and I'm not trying to cut you off. I want to dive into this, but in the last five minutes, I think dots connected in my head, uh, of how things work. And so, cause I was actually thinking about this. So like, I think you're getting ready to talk about like last versus best, for example, yep. and correct me if I'm wrong, but so in my head and again, I'm trying to take a third grader approach here and then you can correct me and slash elaborate when you, it made a lot of sense to me. Cause I've always wondered how those features work like last versus best. But when you started talking about the width of that signal, that's going out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And say, let's say a thousand yards. So it's five and a half feet. And then you, we were talking about all these different, um, angles of surfaces and how they're going to reflect lasers in different ways and yada, yada, yada. So I'm picturing, yeah. okay, at a thousand yards, you're covering this five and a half foot spread. And some of that signals bouncing off and going every which way. It's only some of that signal that's truly 
making its way back to being received by the rangefinder, right? So yeah. in my head, and then again, going back to our initial discussion of timing, you're also not only receiving a signal back, you're receiving signals at different times, therefore diff- different distances. Based potentially, on like, yeah. Potentially, like, and maybe it's subtle, right? So maybe it is like your rangefinder's hitting, yes, this tree here, and it's getting some signal from another object that say it's three feet to the left. So it's within the five and a half foot laser, it's three feet to the left, but it's like 10 yards behind. So now you have two targets. You're receiving signal back from two objects, two different times or for two different distances. And so that's where it comes into play of like last versus best. So in my head, again, correct me. It's like the last the quote unquote last mode means I'm receiving signal from call it different depths or different times. So I'm going to take the one that's furthest away. Therefore it's quote unquote, the last mode is the most distant object or choosing between what did I, I receive the most signal back from. So maybe the most pippin, perpendicular or the most reflective service surface, I received the most signal back from that one. Therefore that's the quote unquote best mode. So that's how I'm thinking of it, like last versus best, but uh, or sorry, best versus last. But correct me on that. No, that's that's exactly how it works. Um, so the most of our rangefinders have a best and last target mode. Um, in the 8K and the 10K, and some of the new ones that we have coming out, they will also have a first. They will have a fog mode, and then some of them will have what we call extended range mode. Um, so in the, in, like we said, the first or the best and last. So it's, it's really just that simple. The last one means it's going to tell you the farthest signal that it received back. The best one means it's going to tell you the strongest signal that it received back. Um, but if you have something, let's say a deer that's in front of a bush a couple hundred yards out, we can swap that the newer ones into first mode so that it's telling us the first signal it gets back. Cause if that deer might be, like you said, 10 or 20 yards in front of that bush or, you know, tree, whatever it may be. um, We don't want to pick up that target behind it. We want the first one that we range. So that's where the first or the first mode come into play. Then obviously fog mode is to try and cut through the fog if we can. And then the ones that have it, the extended range mode is just a flat go for distance. With all those modes as hunters, like in the field, I can imagine there's times where we want one or the other based on a specific scenario, like you mentioned, but then maybe I guess what I'm getting at is like, what should our default be? And should that depend on the type of terrain we're hunting? So maybe my default mode is best, but then on another hunt with, you know, like say where I went from Idaho to Kodiak, right? And so like it got way more brushy. It's less open country. Maybe I want first or last versus best in that scenario. So I guess, you know, anything, any tips on being aware of that? Yes. But then also like, what should the default be? And then when should we realize that the mode can, can really matter? So I primarily am a archery elk hunter and a rifle blacktail deer hunter. Um, those are the two big game species that I target really here in Oregon. Haven't done a whole lot of out of state stuff. So most of the time, I would say 99% of the time I am running around with my rangefinder in best mode, uh, especially archery elk hunting. We're not going to be trying to shoot through bushes and, you know, brush and things like that. Like we are waiting for a, a for the most part, a, a clear shot on that animal. So best mode is going to serve us very well right there. Um, and really I'll say in that three, 400 yard range, best will work the majority of the time. Now, obviously out here on the West coast, you know, we get fog rolling in, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys get that in, in Idaho and Missouri every now and then we battle it 
pretty regularly here um, with the rains and the, and the coastal mountains. Um, so the fog mode then would, would absolutely um, bend me there. Is, is it going to hurt anything if it's in fog mode and it's not really foggy? No. Um, and can I, you can swap them pretty easily. Um, it's usually just a hold the mode button down and it's usually one of the first or second options that you have there. So it's, it's not like it, you know, we can't take 30 seconds to swap that over. Um, but if you're hunting in really grassy open country, you know, let's say you're in some sagebrush and stuff and you're tracking mule deer. That first mode is really going to come in handy if those mule deer are up against bushes or up against rock faces and things like that. Um, last, unless you're ranging a really, really long ways, I, I don't see a need for the last mode um, for most hunting scenarios. I, I will say best is is where you can stay and, and still be very, very successful. I think I have a better understanding for the answer to this question already in this conversation. But one of the questions I want to ask you going into this was if you take two range finders that have different capabilities, so sticking with SIG, there's like a kilo 1000, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's on the budget end. Right. And then you have like the kilo 8,000, which is like, you know, eight times the cost of it. Right. And obviously eight times the capability 1000 versus 8,000. Yeah. If you take those two and you're only working within 800 or a thousand yards, is the 8K still going to perform better? Or since that 1K is capable at the 1K and you're working under its max range, would the 1K perform as well as the 8K would? Does that question make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. So um, at those distances, the, the 8K will outperform the 1K in every step. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about max ranges and, and things like that. So let's, let's compare the two. So a kilo 1000 BDX is what I'll use here. is a max range on deer up to 800 yards, trees up to 1,000 yards, reflective targets up to 1200 yards. So this is under absolutely perfect conditions. This is what we can expect. So let's introduce some sunlight. Well, there goes two to three, 400 yards right off the max reflective range and, and stuff like that right off the bat. So, you know, we didn't do anything other than, Hey, it, it's, it's signals degraded so far by that point that, you know, now our up to 800 yards on deer might only be up to 600 or 500. Um, now let's talk about the kilo 8K. So you're ranging deer up to 2,000 yards, trees up to 2,500 yards, reflective targets up to 8,000 yards. So those specs, you know, I, I have, for the most part, every time I've used one, been able to range farther than that, even in, you know, sunlight conditions and not perfect ranging conditions. But even if we stick to those, um, you know, deer at 2000 yards, okay, we introduced some sunlight. Now that's 1700 yards, 1600 yards. Let's, let's say it cuts in a little more super bright, sunny day. Um, so yeah, obviously ranging a deer at a thousand yards and in adverse ranging conditions is going to be a lot harder for a one K than it is for 1000 than it is the eight K. Yep. Okay. Cool. So that's one of my things when I tell people it's, you know, if you're only ranging two, three, 400 yards, that's your limit. You know, maybe, maybe you're hunting the woods in the, on the East coast and like, Hey, you can't even see farther than 200 yards and 8k doesn't necessarily make sense for you unless you want to do some long range shooting and have that capability as well. You know, for the guy that's tree stand hunting and that's all they ever do. Yeah. A 1000 would work just fine. Um, but one of the things I like to do just from my personal gear preference is we, when I first started, we had the Kilo 2000 and it was a, um, organic led display and OLED. It was red. 
it had an automatic brightness sensor in it. I never had to mess with my brightness setting. So and, and when it was dark, you know, we're practicing before, before archery season and the sunlight's fading, I never had a problem seeing my rangefinder. But those black um, translucent LCD displays, you know, that's when guys are pointing them at the sky trying to see how far they just ranged. Um, so once I went to that OLED display, I haven't looked back. And I always tell people, you know, hey, this is great in every condition. You could potentially have a hard time seeing this range in low light conditions with an LCD display. Um, there are some people that shop on a budget and, you know, I absolutely say get the best gear that you can for your budget, whatever that allows. Um, sometimes that's a 1000, sometimes that's an 8k and, and people want different things for their different needs. You know, some guys have range finders for several different, um, disciplines and maybe one person like me, I have to have one range finder that covers all my disciplines. So I go, um, up until the eight Ks came out, I was running a QO 2400 ABS for everything. What's the more budget friendly SIG option that has that OLED display you're talking about right now it's going to be the kilo 1600 bdx yeah which looks looks like full reach because i just had your page pulled up and there's a ton of options so that one's like 350 retail yeah there i mean and our goal is to have a range finder for for pretty much everyone's budget you know we we want to have a range finder every price point category for the handheld, so ignoring the the range finding binos. At what point in this price point in these budget lines, it, like what's the base model that also is going to get you ballistics? So actually, we have a Kilo One Thousand BDX that will give you um, ballistic solutions out to eight hundred yards. Okay. The Kilo Sixteen Hundred BDX is obviously where it starts with the OLED displays. Okay, got it. So yeah, and then pulling those up, that's a difference of a hundred bucks. So the 1000 BDX is 250, the 1600 BDX is 350. Okay, cool. That's helpful to get an idea for price point for guys who are shopping as well. Um, what, yeah, so you mentioned a couple of things I want to touch on the type of display, um, things like different reticle options, different range settings. So in addition to what we covered on the laser and what affects that, like for guys who are just considering the vast variety of rangefinders out there, what talk about like what's inside, right? Whether that's the experience in terms of the things you mentioned with display, the ability to change reticles, like what do you guys need to know about not just the laser, not just getting a yardage, but anything kind of on top of that? Yeah. So um, up until this year, most rangefinder displays have been what they call um it's either been segmented LCDs or segmented OLED displays. So we make letters and numbers out of, you know, pretty much straight bars to, to be able to do that. And that's kind of a, um, a downfall to those displays. So we didn't have the option really to change reticles with the exception of the Kilo 2400 ABS and the Kilo 2400 BDX, where we could add in kind of some milling grids to those rangefinders. Um, with the launch of the Kilo 8K and the Kilo 10K, we have now gone into what is called a active matrix display. So that is a display inside that is similar to what you have in your cell phone, your laptop, your TV. Um, we are no longer limited to, you know, making letters and numbers out of bars. They are actual letters and numbers. Um, so if you've ever used one of our Kilo 2400 ABSs or even any of the BDXs, you'll know that when you range, it comes up with the range that disappears. And then it shows you your elevation solution that goes away and it shows you your windage solution and it keeps cycling through those. Um, until you range or until the rangefinder times out. With the Kilo 8K and the Kilo 10K, it now displays all of that information inside the field of view um, of the rangefinder. So we're not 
having to wait for it to cycle through, we can actually just get that all the information we need right there out of the display. Um, it allows us to display your profile's name. So if we have, say, I've got a range finder and you know I'm running support for you and Steve and we're out shooting, I can have one profile that's Mark's gun and I can have one profile that's Steve's gun and it's going to tell me which one's which. So I have the ability to look at it and be like, oh, shoot, hang on, you know, Steve, I got to switch that profile to yours real quick. I was still, you know, in Mark's on his last shot. Um, before in the Kilo BDX range finders and even still the 5K um, is one profile at a time. So I would have to go into my BDX app and switch that profile. Or if we're using one of the included ballistic group, we have to swap that ballistic group. Whereas now with the 8K and the 10K, I can load 20 profiles into the range finder and just cycle through them as I need to. At what, uh, what range finder level do you start putting the environmental so temperature and pressure into the um, calculations? The Kilo 5K includes the temperature, pressure, and humidity sensor. Um, it does not, however, have an internal compass. So it'll be able to calculate density altitude, but we won't really be able to go any farther than that. So the Kilo 5K is actually limited in solutions to 800 yards, just like the rest of them. Um, but when we start adding in the... well. Uh, the Kilo 5K, the Kilo 3000, 2400 BDX, 2200 BDX, 1600 BDX, 1800 BDX, and 1000 BDX all run the Applied Ballistics Ultralight software. Um, so what that means is we are not taking into account any of our earth factors. So temp, uh, Coriolis, spin drift, aerodynamic jump. Um, well, that's also because we don't have a compass in there or the environmental sensors. And then um, once we get into the ones that do have the environmental sensors and even the Kilo 3K and the or 3000 and the 2400 BDX, they're actually able to pair with external devices, external applied ballistics devices. So you could pair those with a... Kestrel 5700 Elite. You compare them with the Garmin Fortrex 701. You compare them with the Garmin Tactics Delta Watch. Um, those devices then do have the Applied Ballistics Elite Solver, and they have compasses and environmental sensors, and they can then calculate that solution beyond 800 yards. Um, so with that being said, now when we jump into it, the Kilo 2400 ABS did have all of that stuff, um, but the rangefinder was not as capable as the Kilo 8K and the Kilo 10K. So with that one, um, we were able to basically get a solution as far as we were able to range. On the Kestrels, the Garmins, the Kilo 8K, the Kilo 10K, the solutions are capped at 5,500 yards. Oh, that's, that's all? <laughs> that, yeah, that's, Steve that's was hoping it. for more. <laughs> and uh, a funny, funny thing about that one is um, sitting out there at the switchback shoot. I ranged a a farmer's pole barn at fifty one hundred and twelve yards, and it gave me a what equates to an eighteen hundred foot windage correction. Wow! <laughs> so it's. Oh, I'm aiming over a quarter mile to the to the right of this person's pole barn Holy to crap. be able to hit the target. That's crazy. Can you go back and describe when you threw in compass in there? You uh, you lost me. So what does the compass have to do with the calculation? So that brings in our Coriolis effect. Oh, so the the curvature of the Earth and the direction you're facing. Um, because the direction you are facing will actually start to affect um, how your uh, solution is calculated. You know, you'll get different solutions based on are you, are you, you know, shooting to the north, are you shooting to the south, the east or the west, all of that stuff starts to affect how your solutions are calculated. Um, what, the, range, what range does that 
actually apply, right? Um, you had to out past a thousand or at 600, are you seeing that? I will say for the most part, once we start getting past 800 yards, those factors start coming in. Um, it's going to vary depending on, you know, the, the cartridge that someone's shooting. So if you're shooting a 215 plus grain 308, you know, bullet out of a 300 wind mag, I've seen some instances where people had some slower moving rounds that were starting to get affected at 600 yards. Um, but for the most part, a, a good rule of thumb is beyond 800 yards. Now, am I saying like this is going to be like two, three MOA correction? No, we're, we're, we might be talking, you know, 0.1 MOA, point, mm. you know, a quarter yeah. MOA, it's not, like not inch, a lot. Inch, yeah. Yeah. So for most of us, I think we're going to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hold right on and we're going to keep going. But what a lot of these devices do is the analogy I always use is they're like the kid in math class that only ever shows the answers and never shows how it got there. So Mm -hmm. they factor when you press the range button, let's say kilo 8K, kilo 10K, it's taking into account the temperature, pressure, humidity, calculating density, altitude. It's calculating your compass heading. It's taking into account Coriolis, spindrift, aerodynamic jump, your ballistics, the range and the inclination in like a quarter second, maybe. So all of these things, you know, if we displayed all of that information at one time, you're going to be like, it's going to be system overload. And you're like, what does all this stuff mean? Um, we do have the ability in the 8K and the 10K to turn the environmental factors off. So if you don't want to use Coriolis, you can turn it off. Same thing with spin drift and aerodynamic jump. Um, that all can simplify things. Like for me personally, I don't think I would ever take a shot on an animal. I think I'm going to say four to 500 yards is probably going to be my limit. Um, so do I really need the earth factors? No. Um, it'll help it be more accurate, but at those distances, it's really not going to affect it much. I might still leave them on anyways, just so I don't ever have to worry if they're on or not. Um, but at those distances, I, I don't think it's really going to affect most people's shots. Um, but for the people that go out and do the long range shooting, you know, thousand plus yards. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely going to start to affect what's going on in those solutions. Would there be, um, an advantage to turn it off from say like a calculation time speeds up battery life is longer, anything like that? No, no, that's, you're not going to notice that. Um, I mean, I've, I've had that stuff, that stuff is always on, on the Kilo 2400 ABS and I change my batteries once a year just to it's make sure that I had a fresh battery. It was never really because I needed to. Gotcha. And I use those things all the time. Hmm. It amazes me how fast it can pull pressure. I mean, because the device goes from off to on and, you know, half a second and then half a second later you're ranging. Like the, the ability to pull the temperature and the pressure and compass and that's crazy how fast that happens yeah and i mean it's it's like they're on they're getting a reading and they're going but that is also sometimes it could be a detriment so a great example i will use is you know you guys out there in in boise and even in missouri you get considerably warmer than we do here in oregon um so if it's 90 degrees outside and you go out and let's say, you know, you go into the office for a little bit. Hey, I'm going to be here for a half hour, hour, and then I'm going to go shoot. Well, mm-hmm. if you have all your gear in your car, that rangefinder is going to heat up, you know, 115, 120 degrees. So then if you were to go out right away and, and start shooting, you're going to get inaccurate solutions because the rangefinder thinks it's 120 degrees. So what we instituted now is we instituted the ability in the BDX app to manually overwrite that. And we had that in the ABS app as well. Um, but it's, you know, if, if I accidentally left my gear in my truck and it heated up, I have the ability to say, hey, it's not actually 120 degrees. It's only 90. So I can manually change that and get accurate solutions. Yeah, I've wondered about, I mean, say you had, the, you know, the 8K in your pocket 
right? You're wearing a down jacket and you put it in your pocket. Like certainly I think you'd be better off to have it exposed out in the air for, for that very reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as much as you can, when you have range finders that are going to be calculating solutions, have environmental sensors, leave them exposed to the, to the outside ambient temperature, if you can. Now, mm. You know, if you stop and you're glassing for a while and say you take your bino harness off or something, you're pulling out a spotting scope. If you can, don't leave them sitting in the sun, you know, throw them in the shade or under your pack or something like that to kind of keep them from heating up unexpectedly just from sunlight. But you don't always have that option. One question I would have touched on was um, on the range finding binoculars. You know, we talked before about the optics, the optics of a laser how they need certain types of glass coatings, et cetera, to perform best from a a laser perspective. And there's a separate aperture on a handheld, but it's the same aperture that you're also looking through in a binocular. Mm -hmm. Is there any inherent sacrifice in optical quality, meaning this would be the best performance type of glass coating, et cetera, for our perception, our optics looking through that, but that decreases the performance of a laser and a laser needs this type of coating, this type of performance, but that makes a sacrifice for the user's optical quality. Um, or is it, Hey, good optics are good optics. What's good for the eye is good for the laser. As far as I understand, that's not one. I, I don't dive into the, the coatings end of that stuff really a whole lot. Um, our optical engineer he he explained it to me one time, but when you watch the things that he does with lenses and designing lenses and coatings and stuff, it's it's like watching rocket scientists to me. Um, it's not something I can even try and begin to keep up with, um, and I don't try to. <laughs> that's that's Leave way, the yeah. What, you know, when people are good at what they do, let them do it. Um, but as far as I understand, there's, there's a very minimal trade-off as to, you know, ranging really far and, and good optics. You know, let's, let's talk about competitors really quick. Um, you know, Swarovski, arguably the best optics in the game. I mean, I don't think anyone will, will really go against that. You know, you've got the, I'll call it the big three, you know, Swarovski's Ice and Leica. Like everyone has good things to say about them for the most part. Um, they instituted a range-finding binocular, um, which still offers their same optical quality and institutes a range-finder into it. However, I don't think that they necessarily have the um, ranging capabilities that we do. If I remember correctly, the last ones, um, the first EL ranges that came out were limited to 30 yards in the closest distance and about 23, 2,500 in the farthest distance. Whereas if you pick up a 10 K they'll range as close as a yard and reflective targets all the way out at 10,000 yards. But I'm not going to sit here and even try and say that the glass is comparable to Swarovski's because it's, it's, it's not the same. It's still a very good HD bino, um, but it's, it's not like that. Yeah. And a massive, like not even apples to apples on price point either. Uh, what's the, uh, what sick vinyls do I have, Mark? Uh, the 3000s. Those are 3000s. Yes. I have the 3000s and then I also have the uh, EL range TAs and the 3000s are on not even a question better in ranging capabilities um, to the point where when I was hunting, I was taking the SIGs or the Swaros. And then when I was out of the range, I was taking the SIGs because they're just so much easier. And I was wondering when you were talking about that five and a half feet uh, rectangle, you know, I wonder, I was like, God, I wonder if Swaros has a, a more narrow um, laser at that distance. Cause it was, it's like a pain in the ass to range like a steel target at 600 yards. Um, that's uh, yeah. I'm just interesting. I'd be curious to know what they do. What's different. Uh, Cause the SIG is, you know, hands down better at range finding. Yeah, and I'm not um, I'm not privy to to what theirs is like. I'm uh, while we're talking here, I'm going to run a quick search and see if I can come up with the answer to that. Yeah. Um, but Certainly, yeah, that, I yeah, mean that stuff does start to matter. Yeah, yeah. 
rangefinding experience is just so much better with the SIG. And it's, you know, a lot of it comes to with our speed. Um, you know, we, we have, for the most part, most of our rangefinders since we launched the Kilo 2000, um, they range twice as fast as competitors. Some competitors have gotten a little faster, but then at the same time, we've gotten faster. So when we started with the um, Kilo 2000, where most people, if you hold the range button down, which I'm going to elaborate on this a second, um, regardless of the rangefinder, if you hold the range button down, it puts rangefinders into scan modes more times often than not. Um, I will say most manufacturers operate that way. Um, and when you're trying to get those max distances, holding that range button down and putting it in scan mode is going to be a lot more advantageous than just trying to see click range things. Um, for the, one of the biggest reasons being, I'm not a person myself where I can hold things super steady. Um, so if I'm trying to single click things, I may very well move my rangefinder out of the way of what I'm looking at and not get a very good signal back. But if I'm hammering on that thing and it's going four times a second, I have a high likelihood that I'm going to get one of those signals back into the rangefinder. Um, some people can hold things a lot more steady than I can. I struggle with it personally. So if I'm trying to range, you know, thousand plus yards, I'm holding that range button down every time. If I'm, you know, in close 200 yards or less, I'm just going to single click it. I don't know that I've personally noticed this much in my experience with rangefinders, but I've seen guys, heard guys talk about it. Um, basically saying like, okay, here's my reticle, whatever the shape of the reticle is, right? In a rangefinder, it's a circle, it's a square, it's a cross. Guys will talk about like, okay, here's the actual like sweet spot. Here's the pinpoint that they get the most consistent or the most effective readings. And they'll basically talk about, you know, with this rangefinder, I don't use dead center. I use the right side of the reticle, right. Or the top side of the square or whatever. Is that legitimate from a, a mechanical functional perspective? Does it has anything to do with like the person's eye? Is there much truth to that? Or do things tend to be really consistent in the middle? No, there, there is absolutely some truth to it. Um, but uh, with that being said, when you look at these range-finding reticles, a lot of them are pretty tiny. So being able to, to do something exactly in the center every time um, doesn't always, always happen. So one of the good things I like to do to people is it, tell people is if you're ever curious what is going on with my my unit like say hey it's not ranging like it used to it's entirely possible for someone to take a hard spill or you know drop a rangefinder off the back of their truck on accident and knock the laser slightly out of alignment um or if you want to know like the sweet spot in the reticle go to a, a um a just out in the street and go find a stop sign find a stop sign that's you know 50 100 yards away hit the range button and hold it down and move it off the edges of the stop sign and see where you stop picking it up. That's a great way to tell what's, what's going on with your laser and finding kind of that sweet spot. Cause some of them, you know, and, and this is not necessarily a manufacturer specific thing. There's, there's a lot of range potentially have this. Um, so move it, you know, move it around and find, Hey, mine is slightly left of center, but when we're ranging, you know, we're, we're still going to have that whole circle covering what we're trying to range. And it's not going to matter as much. Um, but we definitely want it to be in that aiming circle. So if, if you get to a point where someone gets to a point where their laser's outside that aiming circle, contact the manufacturer and have them bring it in and, and evaluate it for sure. Man. I feel like I've learned a ton. Steve, do you got any other questions? No. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, covered a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, cool. Uh, any other common questions do you guys get, Jake, from customers, guys checking things out that we didn't touch on? Um, no, I mean, for the, for the most part, we, we covered a lot of stuff. I will say we, we still get common questions regarding our uh, 
our BDX system and, and people want to know, you know, does any rangefinder work with any BDX scope or do you have to have specific ones? That's, that's cut and dry. It's if it says BDX on it, it'll talk to the other, other devices. Um, unfortunately, Steve and I are both in a state where we can't use the systems together, but uh, Mark, you're, you get the, the cake <laughs> on that one because you have, you have free will there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and I would say, you know, the, the rangefinder game and, and SIG optics in general is ever evolving. Um, I believe we have plans this year to launch three or four more rangefinders. Um, we're going to be launching more rifle scopes. We've got more red dots coming out. Um, it is a, for me, it's an exciting time to be a part of this for sure. Well, is Idaho um, and Oregon still only the last two states left? So Idaho does not allow the scope. Oregon does not allow where the scope and the rangefinder are communicating. Uh, as far as huh. I know, I'm, I'm gotcha. going to preface that with, we still have hunting regs that are coming out, have not been evaluated. Each state kind of does something differently. So if, if you are curious about it all or any of the listeners are curious about it, I should say, um, definitely consult with your, your local fish and game departments. <laughs> That's the, the problem when you ask after I don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and you know, when BDX first launched, I got to read the hunting regs of all 50 states. And I will say all 50 states do it a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, some yeah. of them launch them right before seasons, you know, like Oregon, ours come out in like, november december for the upcoming year maybe mm -hmm. even before that um i usually just go pick mine up sometime in december when i happen to be walking through a sporting goods store um so yeah definitely evaluate local regs as to where you might be traveling to or where you live and where you're going to be hunting gotcha it's been great jake um really appreciate the time man i feel like i uh, went to school and have a better understanding of rangefinders and how they work well, next time we can talk packs and you guys can educate me more there. <laughs> I like Sounds it. Let's good. do it. Well, there you have it, guys. I hope you learned as much in this episode as I did. Uh, once again, we appreciate you guys tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, it helps us tremendously if you share it with a friend or consider leaving a rating or review in whatever podcast app you may be using. And finally, don't forget to share your questions with us. Hit the link in the show description to leave us a message or send us an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. We'll talk to you soon.